there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. I want you to notice the verbs in these two lines. Let nothing trouble you. Let nothing frighten you. Now that verb, let, involves the will, doesn't it? You have to decide that you are not going to allow things to trouble you or to frighten you. Let nothing trouble you. Jesus said, let not your hearts be troubled. Now, we have to make a very clear distinction, and especially we women, who are so so prone to operate on the basis of emotions. We have to remember that God has given us emotions and he has given us will. And those are two separate and distinct faculties. And will is the faculty given to us which enables us to choose our attitudes. But most of the time, we do not bother to choose our attitudes. We act according to how we happen to feel. And that's chaos. When Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled, he's not saying there isn't anything scary going to happen. He's saying all kinds of scary things are going to happen, and he made it with very plain to his disciples that after he left them, they were going to have to face the fact that if they didn't listen to Jesus, they weren't going to listen to them. And if they hated Jesus, they would hate them. And sometimes they would be called into court on false accusations, and there would be times when they would actually be killed because people thought they were doing God a favor. Jesus gave them a lot of bad news. And then he says, let not your heart be troubled. Now, how in the world are we supposed to do this? In the strength of the Lord and by obedience. And he has given us a will which can choose to obey him or to disobey him. And we all know what happened back in the Garden of Eden. God created two perfect people, put them in a perfect place, provided for them everything that they could ever possibly need for happiness, and they chose to disobey him because they felt sorry for themselves. They were acting on self-pity. In the first place, God was withholding from them the one thing that they were convinced they had to have for their happiness. And, of course, Satan planted this notion in their minds that God was not telling them the truth, and hence sorrow and suffering and death and destruction entered the world. So if you want a title for my talk, it is Choose Your Attitude. Jesus said, love your neighbors. Well, for some of us, that is not so terribly difficult because we have nice neighbors. But Jesus also said, love your enemies. I get a lot of letters from my radio listeners telling me awful stories about what crumb bums they're married to. I mean, I could read pages, hundreds of pages, describing awful marriage situations. And the woman is writing to ask me, what shall I do about this? Shall I get a divorce? Shall we have a separation? Shall I tell, tell the pastor? Shall we go for counseling or whatever? 
And they're asking me in a very challenging sort of way, you know, Elizabeth Elliot, I listen to you and you talk about women submitting to their husbands. Well, if you knew my husbands, you would know that nobody could possibly submit to somebody like that, etc., etc. And sometimes they say, what do you think I'm supposed to do? And my answer is, treat him like an enemy. And what does Jesus say about how we're to treat our enemies? Love your enemies. If you think your husband is acting like an enemy, then what are you supposed to do? Well, what am I supposed to tell you except what the book says? You know, Elizabeth Elliot has no authority of her own. You're not going to hear anything innovative or creative or new from me on my radio program or here this morning, I trust. I intend always to point you to what God says. And I got this idea about choosing your attitude from the Bible. Habakkuk said, if there are no cattle in the stalls, no figs on the trees, no grapes on the vine, no olives, yet will I do what? Yet will I rejoice. And that word will is in there. It doesn't make any difference how disastrous my economic situation may be. I will rejoice in the Lord. And there are hundreds of verses in Scripture that would indicate that we must act according to the will which God gave us and just forget about the emotions. Jesus says, Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Isaiah 41, 10. Jesus said, Be content. God says in his word in Philippians, be content. But but I'm not content. I'm not happy with this. I don't like my situation. I don't like the house I live in. I don't like the clothes I have to wear. I don't like the church I go to. I can't stand my neighbors. Whatever it is that we are discontented about. Or perhaps you're saying, you know, I really can't serve the Lord because he didn't give me any gifts. Now, if only I could sing as we've just heard this morning, or if I could get up there and speak like Elizabeth Elliot, or if I had a radio program, or could write books, or do something really spiritual, then I could serve the Lord. And where has the Lord put you? Well, in some crummy office, or in a kitchen, or in a laundry, or in a bad marriage. And so you have decided that you are debarred from the privilege of serving the Lord, and you are discontented. Psalm 16.5 says, Lord, you have assigned me. Hi, Julie. How nice to see you. I just now saw my friend Julie Reynolds. <clears throat> she makes a great illustration, you know. How would you like to be stuck in a steel frame? You can't even see her. Those of you who don't know Julie Reynolds... She has lived her whole life. She's how tall? Three feet? Almost four feet tall, she says. She lives in an iron frame. She can't ever go anyplace else. She's in the frame. One time, where was it that you introduced me, Julie? In Atlanta. Gainesville. Okay, Julie was asked if she could introduce me, and she had to be lifted up onto the platform by two men in this frame and everything. I see in Julie Reynolds and in my friend 
in California who doesn't have any legs. Radical limitations, unbelievable kinds of limitations. We all know about Johnny Erickson. We can think of all kinds of people that live with all sorts of physical limitations. The same command is given to all of us. Be content. Be content with such things as you have. Lord, you have assigned me my portion and my cup. And Jesus says, be anxious for nothing. Now, those are commands, ladies. When we are anxious, when we are discontented, we are being disobedient. Let's just call it by its proper name. It's disobedience. And Jesus said, if you love me, do what I say. In Philippians 2, Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Now there's a verse which cuts straight across all this stuff we're hearing nowadays about having to learn to love ourselves. If you choose to want to learn to love yourself, you are not going to be able to be obedient to God in this verse. You cannot possibly, in humility, consider others better than yourselves. I just don't think it's going to work. Furthermore, working on self-love is a full-time job. It's going to take you for the rest of your life. Don't waste it that way. Uh, learn to love God and love other people and forget about loving yourself. And don't give me that stuff. Well, I can't learn to love anybody else until I've learned to love myself, you know, because Jesus said, love your neighbors as yourself. Jesus was pointing to a very obvious human fact. We love ourselves. We already love ourselves way more than we ought to. We feed ourselves, we clothe ourselves, and those are legitimate ways of loving ourselves. But Jesus was simply taking the most humble and ordinary form of love, which is a necessity in taking care of our bodies and that sort of thing. But he was saying, give your neighbor at least the kind of a break you give yourself. Start with that. That's the minimum. Consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And he goes on to describe the attitude of Christ Jesus. Humility, obedience to his Father, taking the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself, became obedient to death. Fanny Crosby, as many of you know, wrote thousands of hymns, probably about eight or 9,000 hymns. Many of them are familiar to us. Fanny Crosby was blinded at the age of six weeks by a doctor who made a mistake and put the wrong medicine in her eyes. And when that girl was nine years old, just a little nine-year-old girl, this is what she wrote. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I cannot see. I am resolved that in this world contented I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep, and sigh, because I'm blind, I cannot, nor I won't. Now that is what you call choosing your attitude. And I use that pro 
that poem on one of my radio programs, and I had a letter from a prisoner. And he paraphrased it this way. Oh, what a happy soul am I, although I am not free. I am resolved that in this cell, contented, I will be. How many blessings I enjoy that other people don't. To weep and sigh because I'm chained, I cannot, nor I won't. Stop and ask yourself, what attitude have I chosen which is wrong? And what can I do to counteract that wrong attitude? God can enable us to choose our attitudes. Now, some people say to me, but isn't that hypocritical? You know, if I don't feel loving towards somebody, how am I supposed to love them? How loving do you think God felt toward us in our rebellion and our sin and our disobedience? His action had nothing to do with anything like emotions. His action was to love us, to choose to love us. And we're not going to feel good about our enemies, but we have to choose to love them. Some time ago, I spoke in a church near Boston, and a woman heard me, and I don't remember anything about what I was talking about. She didn't tell me in her letter, but she told me that I did use the verse Matthew 25, 40. Inasmuch as you've done it for one of the least of these, my brothers, you've done it for me. And I simply pointed out that that means we are to treat every person in our lives as though that person were Jesus Christ. And that woman, who I will call Mrs. G, hated her husband. And they had just decided shortly before that meeting that they would get a divorce. They had been married for 33 years, and she said it was 33 years of absolute misery. And they had finally acknowledged it to each other, and they decided there was no solution but to get a divorce, and it was a great relief, and that's what they were going to do. Well, when she heard me say that, she said, I didn't remember anything else you said. I was sitting there thinking to myself, that is an impossibility. To treat my husband as I want to treat Jesus? Absolutely absurd, ridiculous. But I'm going to try it. And she went home that day, and she said, my husband was sitting as usual like a mummy on the sofa watching the TV. And she said, I can't stand that scene. But she said, I walked in, and I said, honey, could I speak to you for a minute? And for the first time in 33 years, he turned off the TV to listen. Well, she said, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> what do you say when you're talking to Jesus? Well, she said, you, re you say, I'm sorry, forgive me. And she said, I started to ask my husband's forgiveness for all the things that I had done wrong to him instead of going over and over and over the list that he had, that, of things he had done wrong to me, as we've been doing for 33 years. And she said, he stopped me before I got very far, and he said, honey, wait a minute. He said, I just want you to know that I've always loved you, but I thought that we really ought to get a divorce because I'm such a burden to you and the children. And then he began to confess his sins to her. And she said, Elizabeth, I am so in love with that man now, I can't even imagine getting a divorce. She said, it's been a whole month, and we have not had one argument. We never got through a week without a big argument. 
Well, I got that letter, and you can imagine, I pondered over it, and I read it, and I reread it, and I thanked the Lord for his spirit's work in that woman's life, and I finally called her after about four months to ask her permission to tell this story publicly. And she said, yes, of course. And I said, well, tell me, how are things going now? She said, better than ever. She said, we have a marriage such as I never dreamed would be possible. She chose a godly attitude. It was an act of the will, not an act of the emotions. Now, we need to cut out the self-pity. It is satanic. It it comes straight out of the pit. You remember when Peter tried to dissuade Jesus from going up to Jerusalem, where Jesus had just told told them that he was going to be suffering many things at the hands of the high priests and he was going to be killed. And Peter's reaction was just what yours and mine would be. Oh, no, Lord, that must not happen to you. And what was Jesus' response? Get behind me, Satan. You do not think as God thinks, you think as man thinks. Peter was encouraging self-pity, self-preservation in his master. And Jesus called it exactly what it was. Satanic. It is not hypocritical to act against your emotions. I hear people say, well, you know, I don't really feel like praying. So wouldn't it be hypocritical for me to try to pretend that I'm praying when I don't feel good about it or I don't feel like going to church today? It would be hypocritical for me to go to church. That is rubbish. Another one of Satan's master strokes. Doesn't make any difference how you feel about it. How do you think Abraham felt as he was traveling up that mountain in obedience to God, to sacrifice his most beloved son. We are not given one syllable about how Abraham felt. We just know what Abraham did. How do you think Noah felt about building that ridiculously huge ark on dry land and having all his neighbors coming around and saying, and what do you think you're doing? Are you crazy? We're not told how he felt about that. What are we told? When God told him to build an ark, what did he do? He built an ark. And so when God says to you, let not your heart be troubled, you have to make up your mind, Lord, I can't do this on my own, but I am choosing to will against this fear. And by your grace, I expect to overcome it. Jesus said that his father's will was his meat and drink. I have meat to eat. I have food to eat that you know nothing of. And that food was doing the will of the Father. How do you think Jesus felt when he was scorned and mocked and rejected? How was he feeling in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was captured and flogged and blindfolded and slapped and beaten and then ultimately nailed to a cross? He went in obedience to his father. Now, there are three things for any who might possibly be wanting to take a few notes. There will be a cost, number one, in choosing that attitude. Christ was willing to become a human being, a baby, and to be as helpless as a baby. And when he was a man, he got tired and he slept. And he had to get away from the crowds to pray sometimes. And he allowed others to do things for him. 
his attitude was one of utter self-emptying. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let this attitude be yours, who, when he was equal with God, thought that equality was not something to be insisted on or grasped, but made himself what? Nothing. The word, the original word literally means made himself a zero, annihilated himself. And women say to me, what am I supposed to be, a doormat? And I want to say, Jesus made himself nothing. That's less than a doormat. There may be times when people are going to walk all over you, and they walked all over Jesus. There's nothing new that you're going to experience that Jesus doesn't know all about. And he says, let your attitude be the same as Christ Jesus. That's what it says in Philippians 2. Of course it's going to cost you something. Jesus became a servant. He said, I am among you as him who serves. We're very ambitious for leadership, aren't we? For visibility, authority, a position which is recognized and admired. Jesus had no ambition for a reputation. To be a servant, to choose the attitude of servanthood that Jesus chose is going to cost you. Viktor Frankl, famous Viennese psychiatrist who spent several years in Nazi concentration camps, wrote a fascinating book called The Search for the Meaning of Life. And his thesis in that book is that man can be deprived of every freedom except the freedom to choose his attitude. Man can be deprived of every freedom except the freedom to choose his attitude. And he said that during the, on the one day of the week when they got a piece of bread, all the rest of the days they had watery soup. They did get a piece of bread with their soup on one day of the, of the week. And, of course, they lived for that day. And they fell upon it like wolves when it was given out. But he said there were always a few people, a very few in each concentration camp, who would wander around and try to find somebody that was worse off than they were and give them that piece of bread. Now that's what you call choosing your attitude. And you know what? He said they were the people most likely to survive. Jesus said, he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Secondly, to choose your attitude, we need to think about some specifics. I am guessing that there are quite a few mothers in this room, some of you mothers of little children. What is a mother's job? Well, before that baby is born, she is a vessel. She is a chalice, cooperating with God by offering her body so that God can create a human being. And it takes God plus a man and a woman to create a human being, doesn't it? But then when that baby is born, she endures a certain amount of suffering during those nine months. Many women have a great deal more suffering than others. But it's her body, and her body is then not only surrendered to God, but committed to caring for and nurturing 
this tiny creature inside. Then when the baby is born, the mother is only beginning on the sacrifices that love entails. Love means sacrifice. It always means sacrifice. To love your husband means sacrifice. To love God means sacrifice. To love a baby means sacrifice. And there aren't going to be any more unbroken nights, and you are putting yourself at that child's disposal in all kinds of ways. Now, of course, I'm not talking about absurd ways where you're not supposed to be putting yourself at the child's disposal. You're supposed to be in charge and remind that little child, I'm the mama, and this is what you're going to do. But Jesus also put himself at the demands or at the disposal of multitudes. They made all kinds of unreasonable demands on him, and there were times when he was not available, and that's a good thing for us to remember. We can't always be available for everybody that wants to see us or do something or ask something of us. But we have to remember that we can choose our attitude. If I have a bad attitude toward somebody, I have to ask God's forgiveness, and then I have to choose the antidote. A wife... What is your attitude when you read that verse? Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands because they're so much more spiritual than you are. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that at all, does it? It doesn't say anything about whether they're spiritual or not. Submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. Why should I? The answer is there. Because the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Now you can like it or you can lump it, but if you want to please God, you're going to choose an attitude of submission. I'd like to see the hands of those of you in whom that comes naturally. Doesn't come naturally, does it? God is asking us to do something we cannot do in our own strength. A single person why doesn't God give me a husband? Look at Elizabeth Elliot. She's got three husbands. I've never even had a date. More than one person has said that to me. I couldn't tell you how many women have said to me, why would God give you three husbands and he won't even give me one? And I'm, what can I say? I don't know why God gave me three husbands. I thought it was a miracle that I got the first one. I could never imagine getting a second one or even wanting a second one. Second one died, too. Well, I hope this one here is going to outlast me. <laughs> but if you are single, and if you've never been married, what is your attitude? Is that a problem, or is it a gift? Singleness is a gift. You, you've got to choose to be content. Maybe next Friday you're going to meet the man of your dreams, but that's not your business on this particular Sunday, is it? That is none of your business. Today you're single. And so today you say, Lord, I want to glorify you as a single woman. Sanctify me. Purify me. Clarify my thinking. Deliver me from this self-pitying determination that I've got to have a man. When you're hurt, what is your reaction? Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice 
and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. And it is said of St. Francis of Assisi that when he was reviled and persecuted and had all manner of evil said against him falsely, he danced in the street for joy. He chose that attitude. And you can too. Because God has given you a will to choose against the emotional response. I'm not talking about only willpower. We can't do anything only by our willpower. But we can harmonize our will with the will of God. We can offer our wills to the will of God. Be honest with God. Tell him, I hate that person. I don't ever want to see her again after what she did to me. I don't want to forgive her. God knows you're thinking those things anyway. You might as well tell him because he knows that you thought it before you thought it. He already knew. So you might as well lay it all out and then say, but by your grace, Lord, I am going to choose a right attitude. And one simple little thing which has helped me so much is a statement by Fenelon, accustom yourself to unreasonableness and injustice. Just get used to it. God sees these things much more clearly than you do, and he permits them. Yes, he does. God permits those hurts and those injustices and that unreasonableness. Moods. What do you do with your moods? Are you a moody person? You're tough to live with, if that's the case. Will you choose not to act according to how you feel? but according to what you know God wants you to do for the people that you're supposed to love to love. Teach me to treat all that comes to me with peace of soul and with firm conviction that your will governs all. That's an old Orthodox morning prayer, and I use that often in my own prayer time. I'm a great believer in using the words that I would like to have thought up, but I didn't do, I didn't succeed, so I use other people's words why not? Jesus taught us to pray, our Father which art in heaven. And when we sing hymns, if you pay attention to the words of old hymns, you will find that probably way more than half of them are prayers. So why not use those? If you find yourself, your mind wandering, it helps me to discipline myself, to bring my mind back and to say what I want to say. And this is what this Orthodox prayer includes. Teach me to treat all that comes to me with peace of soul, and with firm conviction that your will governs all. And thirdly, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Your attitude should be the same as Christ's, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. We just came from Wake Forest, North Carolina, where there was a women's conference on feminine patterns, uh, biblical patterns of feminine leadership. And when Dorothy Patterson had asked me to speak for that conference, I said, but Dorothy, I think my emphasis would might not fit in with your purpose there if it's feminine leadership because my emphasis on this whenever I'm speaking on the subject of leadership is always on servanthood and Dorothy said that is exactly what we want and of course that's what I spoke on 
What is the nature of a servant? He's at somebody else's disposal. He doesn't have any agenda of his own. He's there for one thing, to serve, to do whatever the other person wants. And he's not expecting to get thanked. And servants were like a piece of furniture. They were just there, and they were supposed to be there, and they were supposed to be doing what they were supposed to be doing, you don't, and you don't say, thank you so much. And Jesus used that metaphor too. He said, when the master of the house comes in, he sits down, and the servant serves him. And he said, I am among you as one who serves. Do you have a servant heart? I'll tell you how to find out. When somebody treats you as though you were a servant, what's your reaction? You'll find out immediately whether you have a servant heart. Well, but I wasn't supposed to do that job. You know, I did, I did that job for her, and she walks all over me. She didn't even say thank you. Let this mind be in you, which, which is also in Christ Jesus. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to death. And what was the result of his humiliation? God exalted him to the highest place. When the disciples were disputing among themselves as to who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus said, if you want to be first, you must be last. You can choose your attitude. You can choose to do the will of God. Now you can test yourself. When you go home, if you have a husband or you have children, something will cross your preferences. Now what is the taking up of the cross? Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself. May I see the hands of those of you who find that easy. Give up our, my right to myself? But don't I have a right to myself? It's my life. It's my body. I can do with it what I want to. If it feels good, do it. If it doesn't feel good, I don't have to do it. Isn't that what the world is telling us constantly? Unescape, inescapably. We hear this. It just comes at us continually. But... We can choose a different attitude. The mind of Christ, in, a, in order that we, too, might be like him in his death. Paul said, how changed are my ambitions. Now all I care for is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, or being made like him in his death. Now, of course, I don't know a soul in this room this morning, except Julie. I don't know Julie real well, but we've had some correspondence. I've met her a number of times. I know that man back there that I call my husband, but I don't know what your struggle may be where you know you need to choose a right attitude. God can enable you to do that. God can give you the strength to lay your will alongside his will and to say, not my will, but thine be done.
we pray that glibly, don't we? Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And the Lord stops us. My will, is that what you ask? If you pray, thy will be done, you have to be willing for God to start doing it. And you know, we pray that prayer so glibly, and then when God starts doing it in our lives and allows something to happen that we didn't expect and we don't like, and we say, Lord, what are you doing? And he says, what did you ask me to do? What was it you prayed for? Was it your will or was it mine? This is my will. Accustom yourself to unreasonableness and injustice. You're going to suffer it. What else is new? Do you think you suffer anything that Jesus hasn't experienced? You certainly haven't. He ran the whole gamut. And he says, let this mind be in you. This mind. Someone has written, I cannot say our father if I live only for myself. I cannot say father if I do not endeavor each day to act like his child. I cannot say who art in heaven if I am not laying up any treasure there. I cannot say hallowed be thy name if I am not striving for holiness. I cannot say thy kingdom come if I am not doing all in my power to hasten that wonderful event. I look at this room full of women, obviously women who want to do the will of God, or I don't think he would have bothered to come here this morning. Can you imagine the incalculable results in the state of Georgia if everyone in this room went out determined to choose the mind which is in Christ Jesus? Our society would be shaken and I would trust completely turned upside down. I pray thy kingdom come, and then the Lord every day brings something into my life in which I realize I am going to have to pay a price for the coming of his kingdom. I may be inconvenienced in some tiny, ridiculous little way that upsets me. Some preference of mine has been crossed. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, Give up your right to yourself. Take up the cross. What is the cross? He's not asking us to do something heroic. We're not going to be crucified, literally. But the taking up of the cross, someone has written, is a continual daily acceptance of small duties which are distasteful to us. Little picky things which test our willingness to choose the attitude which is in Christ Jesus. He must have been mobbed by the people. He was constantly having his sleeve plucked by people who wanted him to do this and that and the other thing. He had all kinds of crowds following him when he wanted to get away. What was his attitude? What's yours? I cannot say, thy will be done, if I am disobedient to his word. I cannot say on earth as it is in heaven if I will not serve him here and now in the humblest, most invisible place. Maybe you did something for the church. 
which cost you a whole lot of pain and suffering and toil, and somebody else got the credit for it. How does that make you feel? I cannot say give us this day our daily bread if I am dishonest or seeking things by subterfuge. I cannot say forgive us our debts if I harbor a grudge against anyone. I cannot say lead us not into temptation if I deliberately place myself in its path. I cannot say deliver us from evil if I do not put on the whole armor of God. I cannot say thine is the kingdom if I do not give the king the loyalty due to him from a faithful subject. May God help us to be obedient to God in choosing a right attitude. I think it's going to happen that there will be an opportunity to test that willingness before supper time tonight. There will be a chance to test it. May God give us wills to obey and hearts to listen to the still small voice. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. Thank you.